I know. I left it in the tray and they took it. Okay. Uh, the Lord be with you. Let's pray. God, thanks for the gift of the creed. Help us to learn in such a way about the creed that we can live into it and enjoy the fuller life you imagine for each and every one of us and truly put our heart in our creed. Amen. Hey, so welcome back. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. And where we left off in the Nicene Creed, I believe, we made it through Jesus being born. We made it through Jesus being born, right? So... Um, for our sake became human. That's where we left off, I think. Does that ring a bell? And just a reminder, the Greek word for man is the word anair. That means man as in masculine gender. The creed does not use that word. The creed uses the word anthropos, which means human. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I can barely see it myself. So sometimes I feel like the ECW has bad markers. <laughs> I'm just grateful they have markers at all, though. <laughs> I think they're yours, right, ECW? Whoever they are, I'm glad we have a cachet of them. Slowly dwindling. Let's see if that, that, that's a little better. Okay. So, so again, the critical thing about the creed is, I think, that we left off on is that not that Jesus became a man, but that Jesus became a human being. And, and again, this is one of those things that's really interesting, going back just a little bit before we go forward, is that the way we say it now is a poor translation. It's a poor translation with really strong implications because sometimes when we look at masculine language, we overemphasize the masculinity of theology, and that's to our detriment. And the creed itself does not do that. Um, I told you before the other thing going back, and this is really important as we're approaching Advent, it doesn't say by the power of the Holy Spirit through the Virgin Mary. In Greek it says by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary as if they were co-conspirators. That's a really interesting thought, isn't it? Um, there's, there's a sort of a rabbinic theologian, of course they're Jesuit, that says Mary was not the first person God asked, she was the first person that said yes. <laughs> so why did it take Jesus thousands of years of human beings to be born? The, the, the answer is because no one said yes until Mary. I mean, that's actually a really interesting thought, isn't it? It's sort of like Moses in the bush. God had been doing that for hundreds of years. Moses was the first person to stop. That's an interesting thought, you know? I mean, this is, again, this is called Midrash, right, where we fill in the blanks, but um, it, it's kind of cool to, to stop and do. Okay, so that brings us to the phrase, for our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, right, and, and I do think we talked about this as well last time. Um, you know, the problem with these markers is their fine point. We probably need a gross point. It, it's okay, the, the key word in the phrase, the key phrase to bring out though, I think, is our sake. And last time we talked about this maybe too much at length, but I think it's worth booting back up because it's been two weeks. The creed says Jesus was crucified for our sake, not for God's sake. I need you to think through that, the, the difference, right? The creed says God didn't need it, we did. 
what difference does that make? Well, um, it, make God, it makes God a whole lot less punitive if we needed it and God didn't. Does, does that make sense? And why did we need it? Well, I think because we're physical, sacramental people. We need outward signs of inward reality. We need that. God doesn't need that. We do. We need the Eucharist. God doesn't need the Eucharist. Right? This is really important to think. God doesn't need anything. <laughs> the Eucharist is really important for us. Baptism is really important because we need that. Baptism can't make you a child of God as if you weren't one before. If it did, it'd be magic, and God wouldn't love everybody. Baptism is what we need to acknowledge being kindred of God. I don't know if that makes sense. That may not be really compelling for you, you know. I sort of grew up with the idea that we go to church because God needs us to go to church, but I didn't think that's right. I think we go to church because we need to go to church. <laughs> and I know plenty of people that actually don't need to go to church. They, they don't need to. They don't feel the need. And um, I don't think there's anything wrong with them. Sometimes I wonder where they're getting the community that supports them in faith. I wonder about that. But I know people who are getting that, not here. Does, does that make sense? And I know you might be saying, Mike, you're like really overdoing this business, and I'm not really sure the creed goes there, but the creed can go there, and I think that's what's nice about it, is that even if that's not the intent, it can, and that's where the creed is not an antiquated thing. By choice of language, it can become a living thing. Does that make sense? You're going to stop me at any point if this is like super boring for you, or if this is just like penance. <laughs> Like, I ate too much on Thanksgiving, so I have to listen to these long deliberations about the Nicene Creed that are crazy. Okay, for our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, right? And this is the, the historical reference under Pontius Pilate, the, the prefect of Jerusalem. Um, I, I often struggle, as I told you this last time, picking up the creed and phrases. I almost have to start from the beginning to make sure I get the next thing right. I should have brought the bulletin so that I get the, the, the next thing right. But correct me if I'm wrong. Um, he descended to the dead. Is that right? No. Tell me. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Thank you. He suffered death and was buried. Now, this is a really important phrase here. This is a much better marker. Thanks, Susan. This word suffered. You know, there's a, a really famous theologian who I, I think was a great guy. I think the problem was that we've taken what he wrote as if it were the gospel instead of just an idea. Um, that's St. Augustine. You've heard of him before, I think, or St. Augustine. In Florida, it's St. Augustine. I just want to let you know. And, and St. Augustine or St. Augustine actually says that God is apathetic. God does not have passions, pathos. God has no pathos. That's a human problem. So God doesn't suffer. So just think, think through this word for a second, this word pathos that you probably learned when you were a senior in high school for the SAT. <laughs> that's when I learned it. Pathos, and that's different from bathos, another Greek word, right? That word is usually translated as passion. And Holy Week we also call Passion Week. And we limit that word to suffering, right? So if you're 
empathetic, empathetic, you suffer with somebody else, right? That's different from being sympathetic, which means you suffer like somebody else. You, you, you know what I mean? We actually use those words like they're uh, synonyms, and you hear sin there again. Sometimes that morphs into the M instead of the N, right? We often think, oh, look, when somebody has died, what they need, you know, what the survivor needs is a sympathy card, right? We even use that word, sympathy card. Nobody needs sympathy, <laughs> and nobody wants it. Sympathy means I've had exactly the same experience as you, so I know exactly what you're going through, and the truth is nobody's had the same experience you've had, right? Even if you've had your spouse die, it was a different spouse. <coughs> Even if you were both married 20 years, you had different relationships. So nobody's had exactly the same experience. The reason sympathy is so bad, quite honestly, is because it's all about us having the same feeling, which you can't do. And since you can't do it, it's a comparative term. You know that you're hearing sympathy when somebody says something like, maybe you say, this was the hardest Thanksgiving I've ever gone through. You should hear mine. <laughs> sympathy, right? Well, if you think that was hard, you know, we often think that's a service. What we're doing is we're, we're, we're competing with each other for whose life is worse. <laughs> There's nothing positive about that. Th th this word here, though, means actually that we, we have a shared experience, and all you need to have empathy, right, is that you're a human being. So have any of you ever suffered a loss? Then you know how to be empathetic for any kind of loss, any kind. You don't have to know what it's like to lose your spouse of 75 years to know what it's like to lose something. And if you engage that part of you about loss, even if it was you lost your hamster, right, as a five-year-old, then you're able to feel grief. And that's what people want, is acknowledgement that their grief is real and that you know what that's like, even if you don't know how that's like, right? Uh, the other thing we miss is that these aren't always bad things. Passion does not always mean suffering. Empathy doesn't always mean when you're hurt, I'm hurt. When it's your birthday, I'm really happy it's your birth, I mean, when you're a ch child, right? Some of us birthdays are suffering, you know? I'm 81, you know? But remember, birthdays are good for you. The more you have, the longer you live. So, so um, the, the, this thing is about feeling with somebody, sharing the undercurrent of feelings. So if it's joy, I'm happy for you. Sympathy is like, wow, you know, your first marathon, you ran that in 348. I did mine in 330. <laughs> You'll get there one day. That's sympathy, right? Empathy is like, I can't believe you finished that. You know, that's so... I'm so excited for you, right? I'm so excited with you. So when we say, obviously suffering is the negative word, right? Although I think the question is, was the experience of crucifixion and incarnation only suffering for God, or did God enjoy being a human being? I think that's a really good question. Yeah.
that's part of the promise of the incarnation. I think we did talk very briefly last time about how Christianity is unique in world religions. I know you might be thinking, hey, what about, what about in Hinduism? What about the avatars? That's where Vishnu becomes enfleshed in persons like Rama and Krishna. When that happens, Rama and Krishna have magic powers. They're superhuman beings. The miracle of the incarnation is Jesus does not have any magic. He has pimples. He bleeds and he dies. Krishna and Rama don't do those things. They're immortal mortals. They have the veneer of humanity. So Christianity really is a unique, when we take it seriously, right, that God fully enters into the body. But I think something we often forget is we're so used to, thanks to the same guy, St. Augustine, thanks to words like the fall, which came from Augustine, not from the Bible. The Bible does not say we ever fell from anything. Never once does it talk about the fall in the Garden of Eden. Thanks to that, we usually think, oh God, these bodies are so terrible. Especially if we grew up in the Protestant tradition where it's not just bad if somebody's having fun, it's bad if anyone's having fun. <laughs> right? that's, that's sinful. So look out for the, the people having fun and convert them to Christianity so they'll be as miserable as you are. That's <laughs> sort of our Protestant heritage. right? Um, think through that God actually became enfleshed and enjoyed it. That's a little bit revolutionary because... For me, growing up as a low evangelical, to be embodied was to suffer. There was nothing good about the world, but that's not biblical. It's not biblical at all. And when you hear that Jesus ate and drank with prostitutes and sinners, I think it's helpful to think that instead of that being drudgery for him, he liked those people. I mean, that's like a revolutionary way of thinking, isn't it? That instead of Jesus always thinking about mission, I've got to save the worst person in the room, maybe he naturally gravitated to people he enjoyed. <laughs> I don't know many prostitutes. I know some, I know some drunkards. They're fun some of the time. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? They've got enjoyable moments. And, and, and what if Jesus enjoyed them? What if the incarnation was not just about God suffering, but God having human passion, which includes suffering, but includes joy, you know? And as Susan said, I think what the creed's offering us is that in our deepest moments of passion, be they joy or loss or grief or even death, that God is with us empathetically. So God is happy that we are joyful. God enjoys our joy. God grieves with us. And then, this is the key phrase in the creed, God dies with us. Or, to put it another way, we die in God. Right, so, if you think about it, the universe is um, infinitely expanding. Right? So, so, the universe goes on forever. I don't know anything about science. Um, mathematically, though, I mentioned last time that there's tiers of infinity. This goes on forever. So does that. The ray goes on forever like a line does, so they're both infinite. But this obviously has a greater magnitude of infinity than a ray does. 
that's meaningless to say because what's infinite is infinite, but, but it is infinitely more infinite than the infinite. So if the universe is infinitely expanding and God is everywhere, then God must be expanding, <laughs> right? And, and sort of maybe a way to think about it is not that we participate in God in moments, but that we're always participating inside of God. It's actually, this is an image that comes from Kabbalah, you know, the Jewish mystical cult that Madonna thinks she's a member of, she's not, right? Is that when God created the world, God made space inside of God's self for the world to exist, just like a pregnant woman makes space for the child, makes space. Still happens inside of the mother, right? But makes space. So, so I wonder if this isn't a helpful image to think about in the creed, right? That he suffered death, remember, for our sake. And he passioned death. The creed is very clear, and our liturgy is not often clear. Uh, that's not a good A. That Jesus did not suffer that. Death. That's not a problem. <laughs> Biblically, God created everything, and that means God created that. Not a problem. God made the human being out of clay, and as we know, clay is fragile and it breaks down, and ashes to ashes, dust to dust. If God wanted the human being to not do that, God should have made us out of iridium. But God did not do that. God made us out of clay. The problem biblically, and you read about this in Paul, and when we read about it in the creed, the problem is that word. Mike, they're the same word. They're not. <laughs> Death with a capital D is a state of being. Death with a small d is a part of natural living. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, you know the original Apostles' Creed doesn't use either one of those words. Does anybody know what, where Jesus descends in the Apostles' Creed? Into hell. This is a good clue about exactly what I'm talking about, is that we've decided theologically that those are synonyms, but that's not a synonym. So the place of the dead with a capital D is hell, with a capital H. The place of the dead with a small d is a cemetery or a columbarium or a memorial garden. <laughs> I don't know if that is clear, right? This is a place. I think C.S. Lewis is really helpful. If you've got time to read a 90-page book, The Great Divorce is really fascinating. It's very imaginative, right? And it sort of says that hell is an eternal place only if we choose for it to be. Hell is a place we go in isolation from God after we die, and we always choose it. I think he's on to something. I wish he would go on to say hell is the place we live by choice. I actually think a lot of times we make the Bible too much about what happens after we die instead of what happens while we're living. And I've said this before. I've spent years living in hell. I have spent years living in hell. By choice, some. Sometimes I didn't know how to get out. 
Sometimes I was dragged there against my will. Someone put me in hell. So it wasn't my fault I was there. I've left it, but the door was well marked. <laughs> and oddly enough, when there's a knock on the door, even though I know how terrible it was to live there, I'll open it right back up. That's what it's like to live with addiction. If you ever know an alcoholic or a drug addict, that door is marked hell. And it, there's a knock on it all the time, like the rest of your life, even though you know how destructive it was. Really easy to open that door up and go right back in. That's what it's like to have things like PTSD. PTSD is just a, always a knock on the door. And you know not to go in there, but man, the knock is so loud. I wish C.S. Lewis had talked about that. But those places are really places, you know, I, I learned this as, a, as an evangelical. And I think it's really good to throw this up there. The definition I got for hell was that hell is separation from God. The prayer book, does anybody know how the prayer book uses that? Separation from God in the prayer book is defined as sin. That's right. With a capital S. The Bible uses these words interchangeably. Hell, death, capital, sin, capital. Capital. Not lowercase. God is not absent here. Those little things are things like when I tell a lie. Even when I choose to. You know, when I think about it and I choose to. God's not absent there. Um, in fact, I think if God is infinitely expanding like the universe and we happen inside of God, then faith logically tells us God's not absent from anywhere. Really, these are conditions in which we cannot perceive God's presence. You ever lived in a condition where you couldn't perceive God's presence? That's hell, don't you think? I don't mean like you had a love relationship with Jesus like I learned about in youth group where Jesus was really going to be my boyfriend, you know, and it was romantic instead of following a way of life. This, this is what youth group evangelical life is like. We sing praise songs to Jesus like he's a romantic lover, and, and that's, that's not really what love is all about. We know that if we've been married more than two years. <laughs> <laughs> I think. Um, these are ways of living. There's a great way that Rilke says it. Uh, faith and love are always in us. We're not always in faith and love. I mean, I think that's lovely, right? Another way he says it is Rilke, the poet. Bidden or unbidden, faith is ripening. <laughs> that's an interesting way to say that God is always inside of us. But these are times when, for whatever reason, not always our fault, that we are unaware of faith ripening and faith and love being within us. And those are moments, right, of, of despair and disconnect and isolation and fear and doubt. Do you, do you, is that fair what I'm saying? The creed and the Apostles' Creed originally says Jesus descended into hell. He went down to those places. Not because God needed to, but because we needed God to do that. And there's this sort of legend that comes up that Holy Saturday, you can find this in Bavaria, is actually the holier day of the year than Easter because it's the day in which Jesus is dead in the tomb. I know what that feels like, being dead in the tomb. 
and when Jesus harrows hell, he goes into the dead place and he breaks the gates open so that people, coming back to C.S. Lewis, can leave if, they'll, if they're willing to leave. If they're willing to leave. Now, you know this if you ever taught. If you ever taught uh, high school particularly, there are people who are clearly living in dead places and you'd like to show them the way out but they have no sense that there is a way out. So you, you, you spend a lot of your ministry telling them you're living in hell and you don't have to. Uh, yes, ma'am. It's very possible that the hell we know is more comfortable to us than the hell we don't know, the out of hell that we don't know. That's very possible. Actually, it goes back, I think, to this really great idea from Plato, if you've read, um, if you've read this. Um, Plato says that we basically live in a cave, captive, watching shadows on the wall, thinking that two-dimensional reality is real. We see shadows. And really the job of the philosopher is to unshackle yourself and to leave the cave and realize life is three-dimensional and that you've been living a flat version of life. What's interesting, if you go back and think about two-dimensionality, seeing in the third dimension is crazy. <laughs> and, 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 and to use some mathematical speak, now remember, I have a math degree, but I think mathematicians just create problems. <laughs> Engineers solve them. You know, I learned how to, how to create problems in the fourth and fifth and sixth dimension. I saw an ad the other day, actually, for a billboard that said, see this movie in 5D. Well, that's crazy. You can't see anything in 5D. This is what my wife, told, my wife asked me what 5D means. I think it means the chair vibrates and it shoots mist in your ears. Have you ever been to one of those things, right? But that's still living in 3D. That's not 5D, right? The, the way it was explained to me when I was solving fourth dimensional equations is that 2D, that's flat, has no volume, is a shadow of a 3D thing. So think about this. When you stand in the sun, right, the light hits you, your shadow's all black and it's on the ground, and it's flat, it has no volume. So your 3D body is a shadow of the fourth dimension. What does that look like? Well, I asked my teacher, who can see the fourth dimension? He said, maybe like Einstein and four other people. <laughs> so I don't know what that four, fourth dimension looks like. I mean, I just have no idea. But I think the idea is, honestly, we live in a very flat world when, in fact, there's volume to it. I wonder if hell isn't living in a flat world sometime. Flat. So for our sake... He suffered death under Pontius Pilate, and he descended into hell. Another word you'll see, Terry, these are all interchangeable biblical words, because this word in the Bible is the Hebrew word that's the equivalent of the Greek word Hades, which is the place of the dead. It's not hell. It's where everybody goes when they die. That's where dead things go. Kind of like that hallway over there <laughs> where things go to die. Um, <laughs> Sheol and Hades, and later that becomes Gehenna, which is a new idea biblically. I'll tell you why in a second. You could also use the Greek word here, Tartarus, if you know your mythology. 
card or rust. That's where everybody goes. Everybody, even good people and bad people. Bad people get ironic punishments there, but it's just a place of the death. It, it, it turns into this later, which is really um, in, in Jerusalem. If you went to Israel, you know this. Um, this is the relative minimum point outside of Jerusalem. It's called the Bar Hinnom in Hebrew or Gehenna in Greek. It's a place where all the blood from the temple sacrifices drains because it's at the relative minimum. And it's the place where people worship the gods of the earth, Chemosh, Molech, Milcom, by sacrificing their firstborn children of fire. So they take their infants and burn them alive in that place in Jerusalem that was full of blood. That's hell, where you sacrificed your firstborn children to appease a god. That's a pretty good definition of hell, isn't it? You sacrifice a life to please God. That's why I don't like the word altar. <laughs> I like the word Lord's table. <laughs> Altars are where you kill things. Jesus went to that place. And there's ways that we can read even the biblical narrative in light of the creed, like where Jesus is up on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a lot of ways to read that, because if you read Psalm 22, Psalm 22 verse 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? So Jesus could have been quoting a psalm. He could have felt God forsaken. Now, isn't that something? That God incarnate could have felt God forsaken. I like that interpretation, because I've felt God forsaken before, haven't you? To think that Jesus felt that. Even being God, he felt God forsaken. That's the strength of the creed, don't you see? He went into those places that I'm well acquainted with. And then the bit about the harrowing of hell is he burst them open if we'll leave. If we'll leave. I, I, that was a lot of lecturing. Is, 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 did I leave anything out that you're interested in? Or maybe it, it bothered you, or there's some commentary. Please. It's Catholic with a small C. I made that C big by accident. Catholic with a, with a small C means universal. So it came about in the fifth and sixth century, and quite honestly, part of the reason we pray for the dead, and we pray for dead people, Right? Keep that in mind. Um, if we didn't believe in a, in a concept like purgatory, I don't know that we would. Purgatory, it makes a lot of sense that God has justice, justice, but that God also has compassion. And just think through purgatory for a second. Purgatory is where you go to atone for the sins you've done in life that have hurt other people. Ultimately, so having done that atonement, you can ascend to be with God. I want to tell you, that is so much more just than going to hell eternally for something you did on earth that was temporal. Right? The things we do on earth have a lifespan. No matter how bad they are, they have a lifespan. Hell doesn't have a lifespan. <laughs> so if God puts you in, an, in a spanless place for something you did that has a span... That's not even just. 
Purgatory, says God, isn't like that. <laughs> the stuff you does has a span, and your, your atonement also has a span. And when the span is complete, then God's graceful. <laughs> Gracious, that's the word. I actually like that logic. I mean, I think, I think it's very compelling logic. I don't know if that makes sense. The way I grew up, if you told one single lie, you deserve to go to hell forever. But I didn't think that's right. I mean, our own human law is not that petty. And it'd be crazy to think God is that petty, I think, because that would mean God is worse than human beings. That's it. Well, I mean, if you, when the idea of purgatory came up, I think everybody goes to purgatory, and then having been purged, I suppose you still could go to hell after that. Especially if you died in the state of a mortal sin. So you know the seven deadly sins? Right, you know the seven which are things like sloth and lust and greed. Well, those will condemn you to hell. Yeah, those will get you to hell even after purgatory. What, I, what I'm trying to say is purgatory is more just than the either or. But I wonder, though, <laughs> I'm not telling you how things are. I mean, I sort of wonder if God isn't actually greater than purgatory as well. Purgatory is how I would be if I were in a good mood. <laughs> but I think God in a bad mood must be greater than I am. So I don't know the answer. You know, it's important to know that um, Scripture talks about fire. Anytime we talk about fire, it's not really about um, you being burned with fire to punish you. It's about metal being refined. It's about your dross being burned off. If you heat a fire strong enough, right, you can separate gold from a dross. Um, and that's the image is that God will burn off the dross from us. Does that have to hurt us? I don't know the answer to that. I hope not. It's funny, though, like Susan said, I, I think, or what we were talking about with hell, that living in hell becomes so comfortable that leaving it somehow seems very uncomfortable. Giving up habits that we know are not life-giving sometimes is extremely painful. Isn't that strange? <laughs> How painful it is to give up stuff that is causing us pain. <laughs> it's very strange. I'm very, very attached to certain painful habits that I have. And, and maybe that's the image then of being refined. But I think the question we have to ask, Morella, and I'm not, I'm not I, again, I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't want to tell you my faith because I'm not really clear on what I think about this, but does God need purgatory or is that a concept we need? And since we'll be dead anyway, we won't need it anymore. <laughs> We read last week in, in the lesson, right, that God has not destined us for wrath, but for salvation. And I guess the question we have to ask is, who's the us? 
Is it people who look like and think like me and have my same education and values? Or is the us all of us? I, I mean, I really think that's the question for us. When I think that Jesus descended into hell, I think who else has descended into hell? And I, I think that's probably all of us. <laughs> okay, is that, that okay? It may not be the answer. Well, I think, I think God has justice. I just think it's not retributive justice. We usually think that justice means you get what you pay for, and if you hurt somebody X, you do penalty X, right? You hit your sister, she gets to hit you, right? Uh, and and in a certain way, I mean, there is something fulfilling about retribution, but is getting even, is imposing the same penalty on someone who committed a crime, does that actually solve the crime or does that just hurt more people? Imagine it's just tough, it's a tough thing to do, right? And listen, I, 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 I'm positive that accountability is important, but I don't know that retribution should be confused with justice. I haven't been to prison, I mean, I haven't. And I don't know what it's like, except for I thank God every day I haven't been to prison. There was a point at which I was really close to being a sheriff's deputy. <laughs> and the first two years I'd have been a prison deputy and that's where prisoners do things like ferment their feces and spray it on you. That's what it's like to be a guard in prison. I think that's what hell's like. You know, locking somebody up, locking them up in a cell because they stole for various motivations. I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's just. I don't know. I know that it, it's a measure of accountability. I know for people who are high functioning that that, that is um, persuasive against committing crimes. If people don't have a strong cause and effect relationship, I do X crime, I get punishment Y, I don't think that works. You know, I think it's been studied over and over again that the capital punishment does not dissuade people like serial killers and murderers. It's not effective. It dissuades people like me who wouldn't do that anyway because I don't want to die. You, you, you know what I mean? I, I, I don't want to question the whole prison system, but I do wonder, does prison rehabilitate people? I think the answer is no. I think rehabilitation is probably justice. No one really knows how to do it. I think that's the problem. No one knows how to do it. This is the depth of hell that I think is really worth considering, is we don't always know how to get out of that. I'm just gonna use one of these foster care terms that if you know anything about psychology, maybe you've heard before. Anybody ever heard of that? Does anybody know what that is? <laughs> if you've heard of it?
So this term came to describe, you know, we, we, use, we use medical terms to describe a group of symptoms. Now, you don't have to have every symptom on the list to have pneumonia or the flu, right? Some people have diarrhea and some people don't. Some people throw up when they have the flu and other people don't do that. You can still have the flu, right? So you don't have to share all the symptoms to have the same diagnosis. Does that make sense? Really, a diagnosis is just saying there's a group of symptoms in general that come with X malady, right? And, and this is a thing that, that um, describes a group of symptoms <laughs> that people have. And often we, we, we pick people who have been traumatized as children, like maybe they cried and their cry wasn't answered. So at a young age, they learned that the world was not reliable. They learned that the world would not care for them. You know what happens after a while? They quit crying, right? So these are kids that typically have incontinence for a long time because they were never taught continence through care. Um, these are kids who don't learn a healthy relationship between cause and effect, right? Because they cried and nothing happened. So there's really nothing they can do to influence events, because that's about all you can do as a baby, right? Um, a lot of times we say people who were neglected or abused as children have this. However, there's plenty of people who have this that grew up in normal family situations, right? And, and Psychologists have now differentiated this to say bonding is different from attachment. <laughs> bonding is the relationship the parent has with the child. Attachment is the other way. Now, I don't even know if that matters, but this is sort of how things start to get bifurcated out. And some of these symptoms, right, can look a lot like PTSD. I mean, PTSD has become this new, really important buzzword, particularly because of things like war, right? And, and, and maybe it's helpful to think of that one even instead of this. Um, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, is this problem that you have where this is your breaking point and this is your floor, and you've got a long way to go between a nervous breakdown and where you are every day. The problem is, with PTSD, you've had trauma that's elevated your floor. So your baseline is way higher than a normal one, which means, golly, you're just a couple incidents away from a nervous breakdown, and particularly when your PTSD is strong, Anything that happens could send you over the edge. And, and that's real. That's not imagined. Like, that's biochemical. Your, your plastic brain has reshaped to think that it's always, everything is a threat. Everything. Like, I went to the store, and they didn't have dark roast coffee brewed, and that's what I drink. I'm going to go home and drink a fifth of whiskey. You would say, you are crazy. I mean, disappointment is a part of life. It, but when you live here, that's it. That's what this is like. Here's the hard thing, right? When, when you've got that disorder, disorder, and that's actually a good word, life is not ordered. The reason it's reactive is because you don't think linearly. You react to everything, especially attaching to other people. You can still, this is strange, because you can still have secure attachments with this. But this is a way of, of thinking and reacting to the world that's sort of like being in jungle warfare, like being in Vietnam, right, where everything is about survival. So there's no room for morality when all you're thinking about is survival. 
Um, you don't really think about your future. You just think about living through the moment. If you know people who have this, what I'm saying makes sense, right? There's not a strong relationship between cause and effect. Lying, stealing, yeah, I mean, maybe we shouldn't do it, but it's all about surviving right now. And there's a constant state of anxiety because survival is always at stake for you. Here's this hard thing going back to hell and death. When you have that, how do you get out of it? If you know the answer, write the book, because you'll be a quadrillionaire. When you have this and you're incarcerated, you're put in a cell in isolation and you already have an attachment problem or a disorder, is that just or is that punitive? How do you rehabilitate a criminal that commits crimes because they're like this or like that? Well, you just lock them up. But that doesn't rehabilitate the, the underlying issue, right? All that does is spares certain members of the population from the symptoms of that. It's a great question. Thanks for, thanks for saying it. And this is about, like, um, interestingly enough, people with PTSD and RAD, they have a much easier time bonding with animals than they do with people. You ever hung out with small children? They do too. Have you noticed that? <laughs> I think because there's something about the animal-human relationship that's in some ways less complex. I don't mean it's lower. I mean it's less complicated. It's an easier way to make initial attachments, right? And of course, you know, the people you worry about most are ones that hurt animals. As small children, particularly, you really worry about their empathy because if they will hurt an animal who is essentially artifice-less, what will they do to a human being, right? Those are those serial killer studies that you worry about. Um, and I don't know the answer to that, Morell. I mean, obviously, um, the animal relationship in both of these instances is like a scaffolding this is the education Eve word. A scaffolding is a temporary construct that you use to get into somebody's schema, their worldview and way of vision. So you, 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 you build the scaffolding up. Your goal is actually more empathy, human relationships, um, instead of reactive, orderly, you, you, you know, instead of attachment issues, you, you want attachment but the animal can be a scaffolding, even though the goal is human beings. Sometimes the scaffolding becomes the whole goal, and, and, and that's when we didn't do it right. Y y you know, if I had to use that in church words, if the Eucharist is the whole goal, our faith is wrong. 
The Eucharist is a scaffolding to get us to God and one another and ourselves in new ways, right? I, I, I know I'm chasing a rabbit here. I know I'm chasing a rabbit, but hopefully it makes sense why I was talking about that in the confines of prison and hell and death and how difficult that is. I, I'm not going to ask a poll, but, but um, if you're really good friends um, with people who have either of those conditions or if you're related to somebody with those conditions, it's just, it's just messy. Or if you have one of those conditions, you know, it's something to know you have it. You can give yourself more grace, but how do you leave it? That's just really hard. It's, it's not like you can take some kind of pill and, and be better. It's not like you can just say, Jesus, save me from my PTSD, and that'll go away. I, I mean, if that works for you, you have more faith than I do. Because that hasn't worked, I've asked. <laughs> it just doesn't go away. Okay, maybe we should come back to the creed. I think that's what hell and death are all about and how they're, they're serious, real things right now. Serious and real and right now and things we enter into and things that the creed says Jesus entered into those places, those places of crazy. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. Now, remember when the Nicene Creed was written, there were no scriptures. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the creed was written in 325 and the scripture list came out in 381 in accordance with which scriptures whatever ones you were reading at the time but that, be <laughs> that becomes very important just to highlight right? um, he ascended into heaven is seated at the right hand of the father he will come again to judge the living and the dead and God's kingdom will have no end. I think I got it right, didn't I? Okay. Uh, on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Uh, three is important biblically and at the creed as well because your, 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 your spirit hangs around your body for three days and then it's gone. And this is one of those key bits, is particularly if you're Jewish, um, Jesus is resurrected after the spirit has departed the body. You know, if you're Jewish, you have to have the burial the same day you die. Does anybody know this? Fun facts you learn as a hospital chaplain. A Jewish body can't go to the morgue. So somebody dies in their bed and they're Jewish. You call the mortician and they're like there in an hour. Because the hospital won't let the dead body stay there. They need the bed. You, you, the body can't go to the place of other dead people. The morgue, it, it defiles the body. So the mortician comes and gets them, and you have a Jewish funeral that day. It's got to be that day. And, and then you sit and you grieve for seven days after that. We, we don't do it that way. Um, but that's how seriously they take this idea about the body uh, that, that we're a little disconnected from. Um, this time when the creed's written, um, you know, in the Apostles' Creed, at the very end, we say, um, we believe in the resurrection, not of the dead, but the resurrection of the body. Right, Terry? Resurrection of the body. That's in the Apostles' Creed. Um, anybody want your body forever? <laughs> right? Uh, which one do you want? The one you got now or the one when you were like 25? Or you want somebody else's body, like Robert Redford's or, uh, I don't know, 
Vanna White, you, you know, I mean, you get to pick. They, they, they believe, this is important, uh, particularly early as Christians, they believe that you get your body back. They believe the resurrection of the body is because your human life got cut short. You get your, your body because your life was short, so, so you can have more embodied life. Most of this, again, we've bought into the Greek notion that your soul is not your body. It's something housed in your body, but different. In, in the Hebrew Bible, you don't have a soul. You are one. And, and this, these fingers in this hand, are part of my soul, and that needs to be resurrected. Now, this is where I think it's helpful to think through, because the Nicene Creed doesn't say resurrection of the body. It says resurrection of the dead. the resurrection of the dead, capital D. That's what the creed has in mind, not that people whose bodies died came back to life. Right? This is why I think the creed still is flexible and helpful for us, because most of you don't think that heaven is a physical place where you have a physical body that never ages and you live forever. I think that's right. Do, do, do you think? I mean, I, I, I guess I should ask. I don't think most of you are looking forward to a physical resurrection only. Is that fair to say? Um, and, and I think in some ways that's in keeping with the creed, and, and that's why when it contrasts these words, death with a capital D and death with a small d, right, and resurrection of the body, that's the, the sort of key things for us to think about. He ascended into heaven. You know, most of you know, because we're here in Houston, that heaven's not up. <laughs> Because we sent some people up, right? Uh, in fact, the first cosmonaut, I don't know if this is true, the quote says, you know, I've, I've, made, it to he- I've made it to the heavens and God isn't here. Does, does, that, does that ring a bell, that quote? Uh, of course, in the ancient world, it's a three-tiered universe, right, where hell is below us and heaven's above us and we live in between. That's an interesting metaphor for describing life, but, but obviously, you know, heaven's not up. The ascension is this interesting thing we celebrate, though, after Easter, it actually comes 43 days after Easter. Pentecost is 50, so it's the week before Pentecost where Jesus goes up to heaven. And I think that the whole logic of the business is that God comes down in a human form, assumes full humanity, enters into these worlds, and then those worlds go up to God forever. Did God really do it, or is it, did it work just like that? Or is that an image to help us understand what God has done? I don't know the answer to that, right? But I think the idea is that that experience of death and of death and of hell and of sin is eternally part of God. It wasn't just a one-off thing. So you don't have to worry in your moments whether God is with you or not. That's already ascended into heaven and become eternally part of God's empathy for you. I think the reason all this is important, I'm spending so much time about it without maybe explaining to you why, is I think it's, it has to do with that image of Thomas and Jesus, where Jesus comes back from the dead, will never die again, but he always has wounds. The wounds don't ever go away, you know? The wounds in his hands, in his side, in his feet. Um, I always look for a healing where my wounds go away. <laughs> I want them to be closed up. But I think the, the, the riddle of that is that life isn't like that, and empathy's not like that. You know, when you lose your spouse of 50 years, 
Do you want that wound to go away? Really? The reason it hurts, right, is because you spent 50 years tying your hearts together so that you didn't know where their heart ended and yours began. Do you want that to go away? Certain times, I think, you know, even if we have children or we ourselves have gone through these experiences, as awful and hellacious as they are, what would happen if they went away? I mean, we wouldn't be ourselves. I mean, that's the hard thing. I don't mean that all suffering is justifiable because it makes us who we are. But at a certain point, right, if wounds close up, we are not who we are. So uh, whoever wrote this, if they made it up, they were clever. You know, if I'd made it up, I'd have said the wounds close up and they go away forever. <laughs> um, the, the riddle of the resurrection is that Thomas touches Jesus in the place that's supposed to be full of death, and he feels life all around it. That's a riddle. I mean, I, I don't, still I don't understand. Like, I just said that to you, and I don't understand it completely. But I think that's the miracle, is that the places that are supposed to have killed Jesus didn't kill him. And the places that we think will kill us, maybe, maybe they don't have to kill us. Anne Lamott says that God didn't come to take away our suffering, but to fill our suffering with God's presence. It's an interesting idea. Most of the time, I wish God would just take away the suffering. <laughs> but that wouldn't be resurrection, it'd be resuscitation, and they're different things. Okay, so uh, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Well, that's funny, right? Because Arius seized on that and said, see, Jesus is second to God. God sits in the throne and Jesus sits on the right. Uh, you could push the language that hard, but it, of course the goal is that your, that your right hand is your hand of favor so that the incarnate, eternally wounded Jesus is absolutely favored by God. If that weren't the case, Jesus would have sat at God's left hand. <laughs> you know what you do with your left hand in most of the world? One thing. <laughs> the wounded Jesus does not sit at God's left hand like a red-headed stepchild. The wounded Jesus comes to God's right. Now, it's an interesting image, right, about how God treats our woundedness not as a sign of weakness, but with favor. Okay, hey, we'll pick up on the creed again next week. Lovely to see you bring any questions, comments, or concerns you have.